Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlow. The following is the tale of the murder which occurred at 46 Lower Belgrave Street, Belgravia, on Thursday 7th November 1974. It will be performed in four acts. Discretion is advised. This one is about to get messy and bloody and full of some really awful people. Act 1. The Basement. In typical upstairs-downstairs fashion, where the kitchen is located. Enter a young, slender lady. She pauses to turn on the light. Strange, she thinks. The bulb must have blown. And continues toward the kettle. In near complete darkness, she fills the kettle and prepares to make a cup of tea. Unbeknownst to her, a tall figure, decked out in somber, dark grey, creeps toward her. Sure-footedly, he moves closer and closer, till within striking distance. One imagines that feeling you get, when even in the darkest of rooms you know someone is staring at you. That unease when you hear another's aspiration in the room. The hair stands up on the back of her neck. She spins on her heels at the last moment. Her eyes struggle to focus on her attacker's silhouette. All too late. The killer unleashes a flurry of heavy blows with a lead pipe. He strikes the victim hard enough to crack her skull in several places. Hard enough to bend a solid lead pipe. The victim crumples dead on the floor blood-filled floor in a blood-soaked room. Zoom in for a close-up of the attacker's face as he realises, to his horror, he's missed his target. He was there to kill the lady of the house. Instead, he's bludgeoned the children's nanny, Sandra Rivet. It bears saying a little something about Sandra. Born in Australia in 1945, her family moved to Croydon when she was a toddler. She was a smart but unacademic kid, and left school to become a hairdresser. Her early adulthood had been bumpy. As a teen, she got engaged, then pregnant to a builder, who'd left her. She fell into a deep depression, and spent time in a mental health facility, while her parents adopted her son as their own. By 29, she was a nanny for posh people, something she excelled at. She'd met a young man called John Hankins. The couple spent Thursday nights together, leaving the lady of the house the job of making her own cup of tea that evening. I recall reading an article a decade ago that stated the couple changed nights that week, as John was preparing to fly to Australia the following day. I couldn't find this detail in any of the texts, but he was around for the police to question suggests this wasn't the case. From what I've read, Sandra may be the sole good person in this tale, so it bears to pause a second to mourn her loss. Alas, poor Sandra. As the killer stuffs Sandra's body into a sack and drags her to a hiding place under the stairwell, he is disturbed by the sound of footsteps from above. Close scene, house lights fade to black. Act 2. A large country estate in County Mayo, Ireland. Sometime in the late 1840s. I feel it's safe to say, for his crimes, Richard John Bingham, known simply as John, 
or sometimes the wildly inappropriate appellation Lucky, or officially the seventh Earl of Lucan, was still only the third most awful member of his family. His namesake, a several times great uncle, was a thug Elizabeth I sent to Ireland to enforce her rule. We've covered that murderous Richard Bingham before in the tale of Grace O'Malley. He governed Ireland with an iron fist, and was given a large estate, which passed down his brother's side when he died childless. The third Earl of Lucan, Field Marshal George Bingham, was in charge of even more square miles of land, and had a hundred thousand Irish tenants. During the Great Potato Famine, a man-made disaster which caused the death or displacement of millions of Irish from 1845 to 1852. George evicted several thousand tenants, not for non-payment, but because he wished to build himself a dairy farm. To do so, he had an entire village demolished. To add insult to injury, as a trustee for the local poorhouse, he locked the gates, turning the starving away to die by the thousands. Before he set off for the Crimean War, and in 1854 mistook an order, which led to the infamous charge of the Light Brigade, he already had the blood of thousands of innocents on his hands. Over time, the Bingham family got more likeable. They also became, by degrees, less wealthy. John Bingham's parents, the sixth Earl and Countess Lucan, could not have been more different than these earlier monsters. They were members of the Labour Party, who advocated for the aristocracy to be stripped of their privilege. John, it bears stating, was nothing at all like his parents. John Lucky Lucan, born 18th December 1934, got his first real glimpse of extreme wealth during World War II. To keep the Bingham children safe, John, his two sisters and brother, were sent to the USA to live with the wealthy Brady Tucker family. Though homesick and depressed, Lucan got a sense of what living large truly looked like. Carl and Marcia Brady Tucker had incalculable wealth, made from gambling less wealth on the stock market. Hardly a victim of the Great Crash, they owned stately homes across the country and lived exuberantly. Post-war and back in Britain, John became deeply depressed, so the sixth Earl and Countess, in spite of her own feelings on posh schools, sent their son off to Eton. He was not a terribly capable student, but he learned two life skills. First, he acquired all the social capital needed to mix with fellow aristocrats. Second, he fell head over heels in love with gambling. In the days before casinos became legal, that happened in 1961, this meant running bets on the dogs and horses, down to a local bookie. He was an awful student, but very popular with the other kids as the school's de facto bookie, collecting bets and then shuttling them down to the real bookies. Academia not really for John Bingham, he left school to complete his national military service in 1953. Completing officer training, the future Earl served two years in West Germany, where he frequented casinos on his leave, and gotten a lot of card playing with his fellow officers while on base. He strolled from peacetime service straight to a well-paying job in finance, with the merchant bankers William Brandt's Sons and Company. He started at £2,500 per annum, a small fortune in 1955, 
when you consider the average wage was around $10 a week, and £1,900 could buy you a brand new home. All the same, he gambled most of his salary away, and sent letters to his uncle, a venture capitalist, full of daydreams of having £2 million in the bank, a mansion, and a yacht. Gambling was a significant element in his plan to get there. It also bears to mention he was also a trust fund baby, with a further £10,000 a year to sustain him. A colleague getting a promotion he felt he deserved was all Lucan needed to quit the job at Brant's and rebrand himself as a professional gambler. We want to ask Lucky Lucan about his glamorous life post-Brant's. No doubt he'd recall the time he won £26,000 at the table, incidentally just before he handed in his notice. Maybe several other nights where he came out ahead. Of course, ignoring all the times he'd lost the shirt off his back. He may share the time a film director commented he could be the next James Bond, and how he screen-tested for a Shirley MacLaine movie in Paris. He may admit he never got the role because he couldn't act. His life was one giant hedonistic party. There was gambling, soirees, and jet-setting. He won and lost more money in a single night, sometimes, than most people made in a year. He hung out with rich friends on Florida golf courses. He bought a powerboat and raced it. Lucan was the fastest pilot on the water, till Mother Nature reminded him, too fast sometimes leaves your boat at the bottom of the lake. In 1963, he met Veronica Duncan, his friend Bill Shand Kidd's 26-year-old sister-in-law. The two headed off and married in November 1963. She promised never to change him in his freewheeling, gambling ways. He promised to never change. Veronica bore an heir and a couple of spares, and cracks soon appeared in the marriage. Veronica suffered terrible postnatal depression, something the Earl found quite insane, conveniently forgetting his own bouts of childhood ennui. Secondly, she didn't fit in with the Earl's new home away from home, the Claremont Club. Established in 1961 by his roguish pal John Aspinall, Lucan was a founding member of the club. He spent most of his life there, as his wife sat on the sidelines, clearly not mixing with his aristocratic clique, and looking increasingly bored to tears as he gambled every night till well after midnight. She went through bouts of crippling depression and fought back when he tried to institutionalize her. After she jealously fought with another woman one night and was rude and demanding to the help, and nagged him constantly over his degenerate gambling and emotionally distant ways, the Earl packed his bags. He left Veronica in January 1973. Lord Lucan spent the following 18 months in a downward spiral, running up huge debts all over town. He spread ugly rumours about his crazy bitch wife, to paraphrase, although not necessarily quote his lordship. He continued to try to have Veronica committed. At one point, Lucan applied for full custody of the kids. Before the hearing, he kidnapped the children something the judge looked very poorly on. Full custody and a hefty alimony were awarded to Veronica, so long as she had a nanny to help her raise the kids. No doubt his lordship would tell you several nannies couldn't handle the crazy old ball and chain. There is no doubt Veronica was difficult. 
She also seemed to have some mental health problems which couldn't be chalked up to being gaslighted and physically abused by a monster of a husband for a decade. There's absolutely no doubt, however. Several nannies left due to Lucan's tardiness in paying them, and due to the constant surveillance by either the private investigators he hired, or by the Earl himself. The Earl blamed his current financial hardships, owing significantly to increasingly reckless gambling, on Veronica. In late 1974, now £65,000 in debt, and in the process of selling off the family art and silverware, Lord Lucan confided to a friend, Greville Howard. He'd fought a murdering Veronica. Murder her? Dump her body off the boat into the Solent River. People would think she went mad and ran away. Howard laughed the suggestion off, countering the children were far better off with a bankrupt than a jailbird for a dad. In the weeks leading up to the murder, Lord Lucan took out a hefty life insurance policy on his wife. Act 3. The Plumber's Arms a pub a few minutes walking distance from the Bingham residence. It's around 9.50pm on 7th November 1974. The low murmur of the pub is suddenly shocked into silence at the arrival of Veronica Bingham, badly beaten and covered head to toe in blood. 45 minutes earlier, Veronica went downstairs to check on Sandra Rivett. She was very clear over the years that she never went into the basement Never saw Sandra. Sandra's blood types found on the soles of her shoes and her clothes would suggest she may have disturbed her husband in the basement rather than the cloakroom on the next floor up. What isn't in question is she crossed paths with her husband, who beat her with a now bent piece of lead pipe. He split her head open, leaving wounds that would require 60 stitches, then tried to suffocate her by shoving his gloved fingers down her throat. Veronica stopped the attack by grabbing John by the balls and squeezing till he let go. The two ventured upstairs exhausted. Veronica did her best to convince John she'd say nothing. This could all be worked out. John was at a loss for his next step. When he went to get Veronica a flannel, she ran for the pub. The police arrived, and a search was conducted for the Earl. Strangely, perhaps, the Earl's mother, Kate, showed up at the house sometime after 11pm for the children. The police searched high and low for Lord Lucan, but he was nowhere to be found. Act 4. The part where I break the fourth wall. Wait, I hear ask. Why am I even wasting time telling this tale? For that matter, why spend the last couple of weeks reading books and articles on this man, who is clearly a complete loser? Oh boy, if you only knew the half of it. I've been fascinated with this story since I was eight years old. And not that eight-year-old me realised, but the public reaction to the case shines a light on some of the conditions, which led to my family packing up everything and moving 12,000 miles to New Zealand in the early 1980s. The Lord Lucan incident is fascinating to many because it happened in the middle of a culture war that concluded with the introduction of Thatcherism in Britain, Reaganomics in the USA, and a few years later, Rogenomics in New Zealand. We moved halfway around the world to escape neoliberalism, with its inequalities and high unemployment, and it bloody well followed us. I'll come back to this, but keep that thought in mind. Lucan, a very distinctive-looking man anyone should have been able to pick out of a crowd, did quite the disappearing act. 
We know on the night of the murder, he rang the doorbell of one Madeline Florman, a woman of Lucan's class, who refused to answer her door so late at night. Madeline later got a phone call from a mysterious man believed to be Lucan. He also called his mother twice. It's believed he most likely called from his flat, though he left without much other than clothes on his back. This includes leaving his passport, contact book, and guns behind. Driving a Ford Corsair lent him several days ago by one of his gambling buddies, a Michael Stoop. He then drove to his friends, Ian and Susan Maxwell Scott. He covered the normally hour and a half drive in possibly under an hour. Ian, a fellow gambler who would himself be bankrupt in a year, was not in. Susan was. She let the Earl in, claiming not to notice the blood on him. Bingham spun a tale of passing the house and seeing a burglar in there, killing the nanny. He claimed to have fought with the burglar, resting away the lead pipe. He then was caught holding the murder weapon by Veronica, while the burglar snuck out the back. Lucan borrowed some writing paper and wrote letters to Bill Shandkid and Michael Stoop. The Stoop letters were possibly written at the seaside town of New Haven, as they stated where he could find his car. I believe Susan would have never said a word to police were it not for the Shan kids taking the letters, envelopes included, to the police. The letters were stamped from the town of Uckfield. The Maxwell Scots of the Claremont set lived there. It wasn't hard to connect the dots. Susan then claimed Lucan left, taking a handful of Valium with him. We know someone polished off a couple of bottles of vodka in the Corsair, but not necessarily that night. There were suggestions he jumped a ferry from New Haven to France. Others questioned if he had his boat moored there, though many in Lucan's circle denied he even had the boat at the time. In either case, he should have been observed and recorded, and he wasn't. While police swept the area, finding the bones of several others in nearby grassland, including a judge who went missing in 1965, who I can find nowhere near enough information on. What became known as the Lucan Circle met at one of gambling kingpin John Aspinall's homes. They maintained the meeting was to decide what to do if Lucky Lucan suddenly returned. Others suspect their meeting, on the 8th of November, was to come up with a plan to get him out of the UK. While some in the wider circle did let things slip, Bill Shankid always appeared helpful, and Greville Howard shared the murder anecdote with them. The police were to run into a great deal of obstruction from his friends. Many suggested he must have scuttled the boat in the river and drowned himself, or at least those who admitted he still had a boat. Others that he probably boarded a ferry for Calais and jumped, possibly into the propellers. Numerous interviewees either treated the police contemptuously, like servants, or avoided them altogether. Aspinall, the rogue gambler who'd sold the Claremont to the Playboy Corporation prior to the murder, seemed to be stringing the police and media along, giving interviews where he definitely didn't know what happened to Lucky Lucan. But if he did, of course he'd have helped his old chum. He'd tease reporters with rumours Lucan shot himself, then was fed to the zoo animals. Yes, he owned a private zoo. In his last interview before his death, he looked set to reveal the truth, then trailed off. As mentioned earlier, Britain was in the midst of a depression which left many struggling on three-day work weeks, as the price of everything shot through the roof. 
The class war at the time is far too complex to break down in the middle of a 20-minute whodunit. There was a lot going on. But what's pertinent is while everyday Britons were doing hard, the story emerges of a do-nothing peer who murdered a nice working-class woman. His details of his lifestyle and spending habits and the obstructiveness of his upper-class friends were covered by the press. The story went viral. In short order, thousands of sightings of Lord Lucan occurred all around the world. People wanted this posh bastard caught and brought to justice for his crimes. There would be the tiniest measure of justice when a coroner's court hearing on Sandra Rivett's death found Richard John Bingham guilty of murder in absentia, only the twelfth peer in five hundred years to be declared a murderer. Like the many hundreds of the peerage who, in that same time frame, had the blood of others on their hands, third earl included. I doubt he ever got his just desserts. Epilogue. But what happened to Lord Lucan? I'll tell you what I know. A handful of tantalising clues point to some possibilities. First, two stories emerged in the 1990s. The veracity of both are questionable, but are worth sharing. One came via a woman who claimed to be babysitting for the Maxwell Scots a few days after the murder. They were joined by a mysterious man wearing a blue suit which seemed borrowed. At around the same time, the son of a local taxi company owner in Uckfield told a story which seemed to corroborate the anonymous babysitter. His father sent two cars out, one to New Haven to pick up a pedestrian, not far from where the Corsair was found. The other, the man's father himself, drove a man in a slightly oversized blue suit to the town of Headcorn, where the man's father insinuated there was a private airfield. This witness only came forward after his father passed on, though his father relayed his suspicions to him in the mid-1980s. Another clue. In 1980, David Hardy, an army buddy of Lucan's, died in a car crash. As police were going through his pockets to ascertain identity, they found a booklet full of contacts. The book had been gifted him in 1976. There was an entry for Lord Lucan, giving the address, care of, Hotel Les Ambassadors, Biera, Mozambique. This was one of several clues he'd fled to somewhere in Africa. Were he a battle-hardened soldier, and not some guy who did his training, then played cards for two years? This would be a great fit. Several African nations were casting off the chains of colonialism in this time, and there was plenty of work, both for the left-leaning mercenaries and resistance movements, but also the far-right conservatives like Lucan in fighting to keep the status quo. Mozambique particularly was in the midst of ridding itself of Antonio Salazar and the Portuguese. Someone went through the guest books for the hotel, finding the surname Maxwell Scott back in 1975. As early as 1976, a woman who knew Lucan from the Claremont Club claimed to have seen him, now blonde and clean-shaven, at the Café Royale, Cape Town, South Africa. In 1975, a Welsh GP claimed to have spoken with a tearful Lucan in Mozambique. Roy Ranson, a detective who investigated the case, claimed Lucan established a clothing company in South Africa before moving to Botswana. In 2012, Shirley Roby, a former secretary to John Aspinall, claimed she arranged flights to Kenya for Lucan's children. The murderous pair never made contact with the kids, but watched from a distance. Lucan's brother, 
Hugh gave an interview for a documentary several years ago, where he was reputed to have told the reporters, off the record of course, that Lucan died in 2004, his body buried somewhere in Africa. And yes, there have been numerous sightings. You name a place, I can find a claim. Goa, India? Turns out there was a similar-looking Englishman there, going by the name Jungle Barry. He's a folk singer from London named Barry Halpin. Las Vegas? Someone claimed he was a croupier there. Moscow? He was allegedly working on a road gang. The Swiss Alps? This is where the Lucan Circle allegedly had Lucan assassinated, as he was insisting too loudly he wanted to return to Britain. New Zealand. A farming family in Martin claimed in 2007 an Englishman living next door in the back of a Land Rover with a pet possum and a goat called Camilla, no less, was the missing earl. Scotland Yard sent detectives over, only to find he was an expat named Roger Woodgate. He'd left the UK for New Zealand in 1974, but was not the killer peer. As recently as January 2021, Sandra Rivett's son, Neil Berryman, claimed he'd tracked Lord Lucan down to a large, shared facility in Australia, where the Earl, now a housebound Buddhist on a waiting list for a major operation, has vociferously denied he is Neil's mother's killer. Oh, and there is that other Australian tale, but I'm saving that one for the Patreon-only stream. The first post should be up there real soon. What happened to Lucky Lucan? We may never know, but I can't help but suspect a clique of aristocrats took the answer with them to their graves. Thanks for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written by me, Simone Whitlow. Produced and all music, yours truly. Visit the blog historyandimagination.com. Links to social media and liner notes. We have a Facebook and a Twitter, even a Pinterest. We also have a Patreon if you wish to help support the show and keep it going. If you have enjoyed the show, please leave a positive review. We'll be back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.